But it's these fantastic philosophical conversations. Face to face, cara a cara. We need to mass produce this kind of conversation. Hello and welcome to The Collision Project. I'm Kelsey and I will be your narrator, interpreter, spirit guide, or maybe all of the above. Now you may be wondering why this new podcast is called The Collision Project at all. What am I colliding? Doesn't that sound a little dangerous? Well, to answer all these questions, I will have to dive into a tiny astronomy lesson. When two neutron stars collide in outer space, they form either a black hole or a new star. Now, I'm obsessed with astronomy, and after learning this fact, it has never left my mind. The idea of colliding to create something new. And that is where this podcast began. I wondered if we could collide ideas instead of stars and still be able to create something new, fresh, and exciting. So we're going to give it a try. Our topic today for this pilot episode, our origin story, if you will, is all about translation. What it is, why we do it, and how connected different translators can really be. Throughout this episode, I'll talk with three different guests from three different disciplines, but they're all translators in their own way. Don't worry, you'll see what I mean soon. I asked each of them the same basic questions to figure out what connects us even if we're from different worldviews. You'll hear from translators in the worlds of technology, theater, and, of course, language. And that's where we'll begin with my friend Annie Burnett, a student Spanish translator, to get her ideas about translation. Me llamo Annie y estoy un estudiante en la Universidad de Ball State y estudio teatro y también uh, trabajo en una compañía que se llama Small Engine Warehouse, como una, estoy una translador ahí. And I then asked Annie to translate that for us in English. My name is Annie Burnett. I'm a student boss today. I study theater, but I also work at a company called Small Engine Warehouse as a translator. The main part of my job is taking what somebody says and transferring the meaning. So not just word for word, but the meaning, because their languages are structured so differently that it, it truly is kind of an art form to not just scientifically take what one word means and translate it into the other, but but deeper, the meaning, to capture what that person is, is trying to convey, not just the words they are saying. And is that how you started off thinking about language when you first uh, started learning Spanish? Um, I think, you know, I, like most people, you know, started off in a Spanish class in, well, I started in, in middle school. I know some people start in high school, but it's classic, like, uno, dos, tres. <laughs> yeah, one, two, three. <laughs> Me gusta eso, I like this, I like that, Yeah. What do you think the moment was for you when that definition of translator kind of changed from the words are what they are to the words are more than what they are? Mm, that's a good question. Well, I remember being in middle school. We had this thing we would do in our Spanish class where our teacher would give us the lyrics to a song and then she would show us the music video and then we'd all stand up and, and sing it. Mm -hmm. together with like with the lyrics and one of the songs was um eres tu and it goes like in english it's like you are the water to my fountain oh, <laughs> eres tu. and so i remember that was like all these metaphors and i was thinking because that song is laced with metaphors so i was thinking oh my gosh yeah it's not just like you're the water to my fountain yeah there's something deeper there's something deeper here. than just word for words yeah because there's obviously such a such a a distance between meaning and, and just the words themselves. Mm -hmm. Do you think there are things we can't 
translate? Yeah. But what can't be translated, I would say, would be more cultural ideas that are specific to a group of people that have grown up with a whole different lens. So mm. uh, one, one uh, example that I like is sobre mesa. And it would translate to above table or on <laughs> table. Um, but what it really means is in Hispanic cultures, there's a lot of after dinner talk. Your plates have been cleaned, but you're still sitting there and you're engaging conversation with your family or with your friends or you mm-hmm. stay even after all the food's eaten, you stay with your drinks of coffee or wine and you just have this good conversation. And it's specifically after dinner. Mm-hmm. So that's called sobremesa. You would say like, um, oh, recuerdo los domingos que tenemos sobremesa. Why do you think that trying to translate these things that are not translatable yeah, well, is worthwhile. Well, I think because translating is our only bridge into reaching mm-hmm. and understanding another group of people. Mm-hmm. And so we have to at least try, you know, and get close. <laughs> yeah. And although we don't have a single word that means great conversation after dinner with the people you love, <laughs> we can still explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still a concept that we can grasp and learn and enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's important to translate cultural concepts that you know, or words. It's important to translate words that are quote-unquote untranslatable so that we can understand a whole other group of people and learn from them and uh, apply that to our lives. But mm-hmm. then, you know, on a larger scale, apply it to to the world the more we understand each other the more we can work with each other and reach a more peaceful world humans are so similar we have to be so similar if if someone can learn another language go to another country and still successfully make friendships with people get what they need to survive food water sleep Mm -hmm. find a place to stay like it's not like we're all different aliens where we're like, oh my gosh, how does this person function? Mm-hmm. How, how is this society? But but you can go and you can say, this is their word for this. This is my word for this. But we experience life pretty similarly and we need and want the same things. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's really interesting how language has developed and, and religion, different religions, different cultural concepts, different fashion, different cooking styles have developed all over the world, and yet it is still possible to learn someone else's language and live in their world successfully. Mm-hmm. We're not so different as people might think. And to close off our conversation, I asked Annie one simple question. Yeah. But it's still worth it? Mm-hmm. It's still worth it, definitely. Yeah. yeah. From this interview with Annie, we can really learn something about the importance of translating languages. Even though it is hard sometimes, it allows us to bridge gaps between each other, not just in understanding meaning, but understanding culture and humanity. As Annie said, translating from one language to another is more than translating word to word. It is learning to understand what those words mean in a larger cultural context. And this is how we begin to really understand each other on a new level, by trying to understand the culture of another person, not just what they're saying. And I even think that this idea should be used when talking to others who speak the same language as you. We can all work to dig a little deeper in our own daily interactions. What is someone saying to you that could be understood more deeply if you considered their culture, their worldview, their identity? So I'm getting the feeling that our definition of translation is starting to move beyond words. So let's push it a little farther. 
Next up is my interview with Paul Gestwicki, professor of computer science at Ball State, specifically in game design. What does he think about translation? Sure. So uh, I'm in the computer science department, and computer science is a big umbrella of a discipline, but it certainly includes software development, and mm -hmm. that's the area that most folks associate with computer science. It also happens to be the area I specialize in. So I do a lot of research on how teams work together. Uh, I happen to do a lot of work on game development, so I build multidisciplinary undergraduate teams through the Immersive Learning Program. Yeah, so, so programming is one part of that. Programming usually refers to the writing of the code itself. Um, but when most professionals talk about programming, they're actually talking about a much broader problem. More, more, let me say a much broader process. Mm. So you know, any, anybody could just type the code if you knew what the code was. The right. real hard part is knowing what code to type. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, so it's really a, it's an analytical process of considering what series of steps can I specify to get my expected behavior. And when you look at what goes wrong in programming, which is almost everything, right? So the, the average developer only writes about five or six lines of code a day that end up in the final system. The, the place where it breaks down is in what's called the requirements analysis. That's figuring out what problem we actually want to solve. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's even before the analysis problem, right? So if somebody gives you a requirement and says, hey, I, I need a, a website that can collect user data and sell them flowers or whatever, um, <laughs> If you have that requirement, you can you can work from that. But if that's not actually the problem they really need to solve, maybe what they really need to solve is they need to send text messages. They just didn't realize that's the problem they had. Mm -hmm. Then if, if your requirements analysis is bad, it doesn't matter how good your programming is, you won't actually solve their problem. Um, so in thinking about these these questions that you posed and um, and knowing just a little bit about this this work that you're doing, I got to thinking about these there's these multiple levels where language comes into play. There's the human language between what you might call the business analyst, mm -hmm. the software development professional who's trying to gather those requirements. Mm -hmm. They have to speak in human language to the actual users. In the best case, more often what happens is they talk to user surrogates, like a manager or an administrator, so not even real users. Oh, wow. and, and the further apart those get, the bigger gaps you get. It's like then, playing telephone. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Because then the person who takes those requirements, which oftentimes is the role of a business analyst, but not, not always, but let's call them the business analyst, they, they take those requirements and then they communicate them, again, in natural language to the developers, mm -hmm. oftentimes aided by graphical notations and such, but fundamentally it's, it's a human communication. Mm -hmm. And then the software developers would uh, hopefully ask some questions about it and get some clarifications and then move from that into the, the programming, which tells the computer exactly what to do. Um, but as you can see, there's there's all these places where that can break down and, and does, all these places where it does break down. Um, one other interesting piece of data is that most of the problems happen in requirements analysis. It's something like 80% of the problems come from not building the thing wrong, but building the wrong thing. So it's before you even get to, before the, the programmer right. even gets to the computer. Right. That's right. where most of the problems happen. Yep, yep. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a lot of, I mean, you consider... A software professional can make a pretty good salary, but how much of that money is wasted having them build things you don't need, wow. uh, it's astronomical. Um, yeah. There was a report in 1995 called the Chaos Report that showed that, if I remember the number right, it was 80% of software projects were failures, meaning that they ran over budget or over time. And right. when, you, when they analyzed that, it was because of this requirements analysis problem. I later asked if he himself had faced any challenges while trying to translate through technology. 
Case. Great. <laughs> so it's not often, I don't have business analysts, but what we right. do is we work with community partners. We study a little bit of game design and we try to figure out how do we combine the needs of the community partner with what we know about game design right. and turn that into something we know we can uh, program. Mm-hmm. So one of the first projects I did uh, along these lines was with Dr. Morris, uh, Ronald Morris from the history department, a good friend of mine. We were working on a game about Indiana Civil War history called Morgan's Raid. Cool. And it was uh, it was actually my, our, our first major collaboration together. Um, so in one semester, we had a team of honor students that designed a bunch of ideas that were, were good, really good ideas, and we refined them a little bit. And then we had one semester where I was teaching a bunch of computer science students, and we had one artist with us, uh, and we were trying to implement those ideas into a digital form. Um, by about three quarters of the way through the semester, we had a fully integrated build, meaning that all the pieces were talking to each other, and you could play through the game. And we realized... It was not fun at all. Um, There was one point where, if I remember correctly, there was a series of seven dialogue boxes that came up. So you'd say, like, click this, and then click this, and then Uh click this. And it was just tedious. But, you know, if somebody's never done it before and you teach them how to bring up a dialogue box, it Mm -hmm. becomes like, uh, you know, if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? Well, Mm -hmm. we'll just use another dialogue box. (laughs) And, you know, it it was reasonable in every little step. But taken as a whole, it was complete nonsense. Wow. But But that's the nature of... Uh, game design partially, but also this idea of requirements. Like, are we building the right thing or not? Mm-hmm. And so we built a thing. It turns out it was the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, we were able to modify our plans and build the right thing afterwards. Uh, and with the smaller team, we were able to communicate m- much more easily, right? There's yeah. fewer points where that can break down. Uh-huh. Um, but there's another sense in which, from a strict accounting point of view, it was a project failure, right? Because mm-hmm. we wanted to have it done six months before it was actually done. Wow. Um, but yeah. at least we got it done. <laughs> yeah, I guess that goes into the next thing that I was going to ask you. I, I'm, I'm extremely interested in what's lost when you translate. If, yeah. if there's things that we simply cannot could translate, and you were talking mm-hmm. about the fun, you know, because yeah, you can yeah. put numbers in a computer and you can get it to look the way you want. Mm-hmm. But do you think that there are things... And, and fun, I didn't even think about that. It's kind of like an emotion. It's like an emotional response right. to it. Do you think that that's possible to translate through technology? Yeah, so that's a great question. And like I said, because I happen to do a lot of research on game design, I'll, I'll give you that perspective that I have. That's great, yeah. Um, one of the things I study in my class is this classic model that was developed a couple years, uh, many years ago now, um, called Mechanics, Dynamics, and Aesthetics, MDA. And in a nutshell, here's how it works. The des- everything the designer directly specifies are called mechanics. So that includes everything from what your color palette is to what the game rules are to uh, sometimes things like what kind of boxes it shipped in, right? Any of those decisions that they can make. But all of those decisions, when the game is played, lead to dynamics, which you can't directly control, right? You set up a situation where the dynamics emerge, and from the dynamics emerge the aesthetics, which is the feeling you have of playing the game. So the feeling of excitement or fun. And and in game design, we take fun and break it down into smaller categories, right? So there's this fiero fun, which is that fun of accomplishment, or mm-hmm. there's the um, kvel fun, which is joy in somebody else's accomplishment. And depending on how you want to design it, you can push for one of those. But but you can't put fiero or kvel into a game, right? You can't do that. You can hope for them, but essentially what you're doing with the mechanics is the language of game design. Um, and it's similar to how in programming, we write our programs in a static form, and then we execute them. We can't make the execution directly, right? The execution is a, uh, 
it's, it's a phenomenon that occurs as a result of the work we do with writing the code. Mm-hmm. And the feelings that the user has out of that software system is, again, the next level up. So it's very much like game design, right? So we set up the static thing, we put it in motion, and we hope we get what we wanted. And if we didn't, well, you, you got to iterate. You have to loop through again. And try it again. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. So with all of these obstacles in your way, why do you think that this is worthwhile to try and translate these feelings oh. or these responses through technology? Mm-hmm. That's a more philosophical question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have a couple different answers, if I may. Yeah, uh, go one for is it. as a as an educator, as a professor, it's important to me to help students understand the richness and the complexity of the field, particularly doing this kind of software development work that I do, which also touches on game programming and human computer interaction. These are the kinds of courses I tend to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, for them to see the complexity that can come up in and understand things like what do you do with a bad requirement? How do we face ambiguity? Um, to me, there's an implicit joy in that. And that's probably just my, my love of the field, right? My, my love of managing that complexity and trying to make it manageable to other people, right? So, so I manage the complexity so other people can have a better experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that got me into computer science in the first place, right? It, yeah. it empowers me to make people's lives better. Um, the game development that I do is similar, that I've always enjoyed playing video games. And when I make them, I'm creating experiences for other people to have. So it's very much a, an artistic drive, um, not in the sense of I need to express something. Usually it's not that. Usually it's more like, I want the player to have a certain reaction. I want them to have a certain feeling. Technology um, is a tool that we use. I mean, so so broadly speaking, technology is anything we create, right? Like mm-hmm. pencils are, are technology, right. right? So so we use technology as a means to an end to to create the experiences that we want. And the fact that we have these amazingly powerful computing devices and we have more access to technological infrastructure than we've ever had before mm-hmm. um, makes it possible for people even without much experience to to get in fairly quickly and make some very rich experiences to, to create those feelings about other people or make their lives better mm-hmm. uh, or at the very least that's not the very least maybe orthogonally find that joy that i have when i'm building software right so the kind of people who kind of get attracted into computer science because they see wow i can make things that change the world well yeah let, let's do that <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> This interview is so exciting to me because it challenged my initial point of view. I expected this interview to be all about numbers. I expected to be struggling to find any connection to the worldview that I'm from. But after asking Paul the same questions that I asked Annie, I started to see connecting threads that I didn't expect. Translating through technology is still fundamentally human. Paul and I talked about what it means to translate emotion through devices and programs And I think that that goal is so similar to translating languages. Digging beyond the tool itself, whether that's words or computers, in an attempt to reach out to another human being on a new level. While that can be to learn about them, or to elicit an emotional response from them, the goal is the same. My third and final interview was with another translator who shares this same goal, a director and professor of theater at Ball State, Matt Reeder. My name is Matthew Reeder. I am an assistant professor of directing and Shakespeare here at Ball State, um, and I direct plays. Do you have a time that you could riff on when you really were challenged by a script, and you were like, I know what the meaning of this is, 
how do I put this on stage? And could you talk about how you overcame that difficulty? Sure. And I, 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 although I don't know that I would ever claim that I ever know the meaning of a play. <laughs> I, I know how I respond to it as a director. And yes. I know, and I think I've been the doing The meaning this, you want to right, I, share. I, I've been doing it long enough that I think that I understand what someone might get from it. But yeah. in terms of the, I, I'm not interested in how I, you know, what my own meaning, of, what I think my own meaning of a play is. Of but rather how the thing kind of works on stage. Mm-hmm. I guess this is recent past. Mm-hmm. Um, when we did Far Away uh, mm-hmm. in the Cave, And popping out for a little bit of context, uh, Far Away is a play written in 2000 by British playwright Carol Churchill. It's made up of three acts, but the whole play is only 50 minutes long, and it's based on the premise of a world in which everything in nature is at war with each other. It's uh, pretty out there. Her language is very suggestive, um, uh, and each act uh, seems to have a completely different style. Um, Carol Churchill is the kind of playwright that loves to leave out as much as she possibly can um, in a play and allow the the people who are um, working on the play to flesh it out as much as they can before they put it in front of an audience. Um, So we eventually, there was the third act of this, I say act, they're only about 20 minutes each, but Mm -hmm. the third part of this particular play um, contains some, what appears to be exceedingly bizarre language. Mm. Um, And I remember in auditions, Actors were stymied by it. They were, what is, I don't, how do I, what does this mean? And so what, can you help me with what this means so I know how to, um, Hmm. so I know how to play this? Hmm. Um, Which of course is kind of thinking from the outside instead of going from the inside first and coming out. But um, it was something that we we grappled with uh, in rehearsal as well. Uh, In act three, the language was being used to kind of indicate that literally the entire world was at war. So... Hmm rabbits were fighting rivers and rivers were on the side of the tigers but the tigers were actually you know um, in cahoots with the treetops and the treetops were like um uh, they'd kind of betrayed the blades of grass and the blades of grass were out to get the humans so it's all hmm. this like really bizarre you know super nature uh, nat- uh, imagery that dealt with nature yeah i mean eventually we, ha- we 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 got to the point working through this that I, I had to say to the actors look this doesn't mean anything huh. it doesn't it has no meaning other than what you're saying mm-hmm. um and so we the things, kind of convincing them that the things that they are saying are the things that are actually happening in the world, that that's how far gone this particular world of this play um, had gotten. Yeah. Um, and then finding some way to, to communicate to the audience um, that they weren't speaking in some sort of like metaphorical code or whatever, that, <laughs> that no, the, the blades of grass were actually in cahoots with the treetops and then, you know, betraying the humans or whatever, that mm-hmm. this was what this particular world had come to. Mm. And I think there's always a... Especially when reading a play, especially when reading a play in classes, there's always a there's always a uh, a tendency to look for meaning because I think we've been trained to look for meaning. Mm-hmm. Rather, the way I kind of quote unquote translate these things is rather than what do they mean, what do they do, and mm-hmm. um, instead of you know what do they mean, what are they what what are these plays after? What are they what are they attempting to do? What are they attempting to to bring to life to the audience? What is you know what what part of the story is is um, is being kind of untangled in this moment rather mm-hmm. than what it means? Yeah. As a director, I'm not terribly interested in meaning. I think audiences again are smart, and they'll yeah. if we've done our job as you know as uh, as a production company or production, then the meaning will reveal itself to the audience internally, which is where we want that to happen. Rather right. Than, yeah. And audiences. I mean, obviously, they're going to take something different away. You can never have every single audience member in an audience leaving thinking the same thought. Right. So, but as a director, you have 
a goal. You know, you have like one thing you're like, okay, I have, or maybe it's multiple things, but you have an idea of what it is. Do you think it's possible to translate what you are thinking into the audience's brains? I think we can I think get to a ballpark, right? I think try. a, lot, a <laughs> yeah. lot of translation is whittling away the things that don't matter, right? Yeah. So um, Annie Baker did a translation of Uncle Vanya, right? So she's mm. looking at the text of Uncle Vanya, and part of part of what she has to do is kind of whittle that text down to like the essential meaning like mm. we, all the all the other what is the stuff that's in this play that doesn't directly matter in the moment mm-hmm. and then kind of figuring all right so let's start with there what let's start with that stuff that all that stuff we whittled away let's start with what's left um and then so if we if we constantly uh, and i kind of i rehearse that way in place too all right so what's what's really at the heart of all of this other stuff that's necessary but mm-hmm. not directly related to um, uh, kind of the, the, the spine of the play. What is the spine of this particular play or this moment and how do we point that in a specific direction? Mm-hmm. Um, the play can be as rich and as varied and as um, uh, uh, as stylistically varied as it wants to be, but as long as I understand what that spine is, mm-hmm. um, then I'm going to go a long way, I think, to, 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 to communicating that to an audience. Mm-hmm. And then if they get that, you know, they get that, basic idea of, oh, that's what this is about, then the rest is all up to them. Why is it worth it to try, even if it's not a guarantee? It's worth it to me if someone's asking questions, mm-hmm. right? Um, if, they, if someone's able to walk out of the, the theater, close the door behind them, go on about their day and never thinking about it, and never think about it again, I feel like I have not done my job. Mm-hmm. So it's worth it because these kinds of stories require us to ask questions that maybe we didn't ask questions that maybe we didn't ask ourselves before we walked into the theater we don't have to have the answers to them but we're now actively asking those questions mm-hmm. um <laughs> going back to far away again um uh there was an audience member that um was sitting directly in front of me and after the 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 the, the, the play went down um there was this silence and he <laughs> leaned over uh to the person he was with and he said what in the hell did I just see? <laughs> and they both just kind of sat there. Uh, it wasn't a rejection, right? No. It wasn't that, oh, this, this, is, this is, you know, what a waste of my time. It was, there was just that, you could, I could just see them sitting in that tension. Like, what, what was that? And so wow. they didn't get up, right. right, and just walk out of the theater. They sat there for a few minutes and they started talking and, well, what is this? And, <laughs> and you know, how, and so there, all of the, the, the questions were activated in them, mm-hmm. um, which is ultimately all I can ever hope for. Yeah. I'm not interested in answers. Right. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the question. So how, how can I get people to start asking questions uh, within a certain framework mm-hmm. um, that the production wants them to ask? Yeah. Um, Questions are extremely powerful. I mean, if we if we think we know all of the answers to every moment in our life, we're going to walk through our life um, with blinders on. But the moment we start questioning those things, um, I think our lives open up and experience these shows. And so. it's so unique to be able to carry that conversation mm-hmm. or exploration, as you said, beyond the thing itself, which is the play. Absolutely. I. That's great. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. I love it. And after our main conversation... Matt brought up an incredibly beautiful point about translation in general. Since you asked me these questions, um, I've been thinking about this act of translation a lot, and it's it really it really made me realize how all of us are translators. Mm. 
the act of being born into the world is an act of translation. Um, I'll never forget watching my baby son, who's now 13, um, learn to process information as it came to him. How he would walk around the world and he would point at airplanes and he just, he had one word at that point, it was that. So he'd point and he'd say, that. And you know, he'd look at me like, that's a thing that's in the world, dad. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's there. And then a couple weeks later, the that appears in a book and he recognizes that thing that I saw in the sky, it's right there on that page. That airplane, it's, it's that. There's a duck right there. And look, there's a duck over there. And so it's this, it's this, con we are, language is essentially intention and information. And we, as, even as children, we're learning how to process those things simultaneously. And the act of discovering the world is a massive act of translation. And as my, as my children grow, that translation only becomes more complex. As they, you know, he, they bring home back from the world, you know, whether it's a stupid internet meme or something they read in a book, and <laughs> what is this thing that's been put in front of me? And then watching them kind of untangle that and process not only the information but how they feel about that information um, is deeply moving. So I think this this question is really wonderful. Yeah. Whatever is you're you're digging down with this particular podcast, we're is figuring really, it out as we go. <laughs> a really lovely idea. I hope I never stop asking questions. I hope I never stop re-examining information that I get. You know, I think that's why yeah. I love storytelling, because it does mm -hmm. that. I love this interview because it really stretches our definition of translation. Maybe translating isn't about finding meaning at all. Matt talked about wanting the audiences that see his productions to leave with questions, and I think that is an incredibly powerful statement. Sometimes we simply aren't going to have all the answers. Actually, scratch that. Most of the time we won't have all the answers, but that shouldn't discourage us from asking anyways. It's about asking the questions. Asking the questions that maybe find some answers, and then using those answers to ask more questions. I think that's incredibly courageous. To try and ask questions, even if you aren't sure of the meaning yet. To me, it's so important that we aren't afraid to ask questions, that we aren't afraid to be wrong, because if we're afraid of asking the question, how will we ever discover the answer? I know I'm going to try harder to ask more questions, to leap into the unknown more often without fear, because having asked the question at all was brave. Whether you are trying to understand the deeper meanings of someone's words, using your personal tools to create positivity in the lives of those around you, or working harder to ask big questions, you too are a translator. Maybe translating is about finding meaning, and maybe not. Maybe it's about using technological tools, or maybe it's about using linguistics. Regardless of what you think about translation now, I hope that it's at least a little deeper, wider, and fuller definition than the one you came in with. I challenge you to take these lessons and apply them in your life in order to reach out to people in a new way. Tying it all back to the very beginning, I will leave you with this mantra. Be like a neutron star. Create when you collide.
A big thank you to Indiana Public Radio on Ball State's campus for letting me use the recording equipment to record this podcast. Thank you to Annie, Paul, and Matt for your insight and inspiration. A huge thank you to Jen Blackmer and Barb Stedman for your constant advice and guidance. And to all of you, not only for listening to and sharing this podcast, but for bravely carrying big ideas that will someday change the world. Keep colliding. <laughs>